Thank you for downloading this episode of Case Notes. Case Notes was recorded at the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh as part of the Edinburgh History of Medicine seminar series. You can get news of our latest events if you follow us on Twitter at RCP Heritage. We hope you enjoy the talk. Uh, well, thanks very much, Roger, for a very generous uh, introduction. And thanks uh, very much, uh, everyone, for coming out uh, for this talk. Uh, I'd like to start uh, with two letters by two patients uh, who were in the, the Royal Edinburgh Asylum uh, in the latter part of the, the 19th century. The first letter uh, looks at the external world, what, what it was like to be a patient in, in the Royal Edinburgh Asylum, and the second letter describes what it's like to be tormented in your head. The first letter is from Adela D, and uh, she writes, I feel I cannot stand this place a minute longer and soon I shall lose the brains I had and not be able to interest myself and others in everything that goes on in the world. The monotony and routine simply drives me wild. I feel I shall go on degenerating in this environment into an animal that only lives to eat, as we do here, and has not thought beyond, for really that is all the treatment consists of. And the second letter is by Henry B., a 32-year-old commercial traveller, who talked about a sea trip he'd taken before coming into the asylum. And he writes, A ship full of passengers who were principally thought readers, animal magnetists and hypnotists, so tortured me during the whole voyage that previous to arriving in London, my head became slightly affected by the constant use of the Röntgen ray, which is what we call the X-ray. These same thought readers trace me here and combine to make it appear as if my mental equilibrium was affected. These thought readers I believe to be a gang of blackmailers and one of the name of Mr Pendergast, late of Auckland. So these uh, are two letters from a, a really wonderful collection of patients' letters, uh, patients writing from the Royal Edinburgh Asylum uh, in the last quarter of the 19th century uh, and on to 1908. And this was a period when uh, Dr Thomas Clouston was the head doctor, uh, the physician superintendent. And, and this uh, very rich archive is now with the Lothian Health Services archives in George Square. The interest in uh, the patient perspective has been with us for some decades now, uh, and social historians have uh, emphasised that, uh, as well as looking at what doctors write about illness and treatment, we should look at uh, what patients are saying. And uh, as many people know, a leading figure in this was uh, the late Roy Porter, social historian. And in a paper in 1985, he talked about the patient's view doing medical history from below, saying that as well as attending to doctor's writings, institutional uh, writings, we should uh, see what the patients were saying about things. Uh, and Roy Porter wrote a lot about the patient's perspective, not just in psychiatry, but in medicine. And to take just one of his many publications, uh, he wrote a book, A Social History of Madness, stories of the insane. And Porter uh, was also influenced by an American, uh, Dale Peterson, who uh, brought out a book, A Mad People's History of Madness. And this was a collection of pieces by uh, patients about being in, in institutions and about their mental disturbance. But both uh, Porter's work and Dale Peterson's work uh, was almost uh, uh, completely based on retrospective accounts, accounts by patients after they'd recovered, after they came out of the asylum. And the difference uh, between their work and the Edinburgh Archive is that we have 
patients' letters uh, that were written when the patients were actually in the asylum and when they were in the midst of uh, mental turmoil. So we get this very direct and uh, immediate effect from these letters and that they're not prone to uh, retrospective uh, rationalisation of what was going on. So I think they give a much more vivid picture of uh, both asylum life and what it's like to be uh, mentally tormented or disturbed. And, and Porter and Peterson had to rely on literary educated types uh, to, for their accounts, whereas these letters are from the whole spectrum, or at least the whole spectrum of the Edinburgh population who could read and write. So what I was going to do in this talk is firstly give you a brief background to the Royal Edinburgh Asylum, uh, then talk very briefly about Dr. Clouston. And then the bulk of the talk is looking at the patient's letters and in the main looking at the patient's accounts of uh, life in the asylum. And then a wee bit about patient's descriptions of their inner worlds uh, before offering some concluding remarks. So the Royal Edinburgh Asylum, as I think everybody knows, opened nearly 200 years ago in 1813. And in the 19th century, it consisted of an East House, uh, which was for private patients, upper class patients, who paid for their board, and uh, a West House, now McKinnon House, which was for so-called pauper patients, or, or working class patients, who, uh, whose board was paid by the parish. There were some uh, lower middle class pa uh, patients who were given a low rate of board and uh, they, they were housed in the West House. The inmates were also divided by gender, so there were separate wards for male and females, and they were also divided by the severity of the illness. So as the patients got better, they moved uh, from ward to ward. And during uh, this period, as you can see from the graph, uh, the asylum numbers increased from the time uh, Thomas Clouston took over in 1873, uh, and at 1900 it was 472. And we come to look at the letters, we'll see that patients were uh, complaining uh, about the overcrowding in the asylum. And the dip in the graph is when Bangor Asylum was opened. So uh, that was the explanation. So Thomas Clouston was a, a very eminent alienist, as psychiatrists uh, were called in the 19th century. Uh, he was a, an editor of the Journal of Mental Science, now the British Journal of Psychiatry. He wrote a textbook on mental disease. And Clouston said his asylum regime was <coughs> built on discipline, order, a life under medical rule. And this is a, a picture of Clouston uh, seated with his medical assistants. And you'll see uh, they're all male. Uh, females weren't... Uh, permitted to enter medical school into the latter part of the 19th century, and Clouston was part of the battle to keep women out of medical school, uh, and as we know, he failed. The first psychiatrist at the Royal Edinburgh really early 20th century. So for Clouston, uh, insanity was a, a loss of self-control, and the asylum was there to bring back order uh, to disordered minds. And you did this with regular routine and rules, and the rules applied uh, pretty severely as well to staff. Clouston uh, was the first lecturer in mental disease at Edinburgh University. This is a cartoon by one of his students, Thomas of Tipperlin, Tipperlin Road at the Royal Edinburgh. And as you'll see, uh, Clouston was very formally dressed in frock coat and striped trousers. Clouston believed that stoutness was uh, conducive to, to mental well-being, and he felt that you should feed the patient up, fatten the patient up, the gospel of fatness, as he described it. Uh, as we'll see in the letters, quite a few patients uh, resented this. He also made a daily tour of the asylum and tried to talk uh, to each patient. And if we look at life inside the asylum, 
The Asylum Day had a predictable programme. Uh, you got uh, woken up early, there were walks round the grounds, and it was early to bed. There were entertainments such as dances, outings for the uh, less disturbed patients, uh, lectures, people would come to the asylum and give lectures, uh, and there were sports. And um, there was work for pauper patients. If you were private patients, uh, patient, you weren't allowed to be forced to work, and this was something Clouston lamented because he felt work activity was good for mental well-being. So if you're uh, a male, pauper patient, you're sent to the workshops and the gardens, and if you're female, uh, you're sent to the laundry and sewing rooms. Meal times uh, were a forum when the patients met, and there was even greater mingling uh, at the dances, the asylum dances, where private and pauper patients uh, could meet, and the, the staff also uh, participated in these dances. The pauper patients uh, were identified because they had to wear a pauper uh, uniform, unlike the private patients who were allowed to wear their own clothes, and, and this was a source of resentment for a, a lot of uh, pauper patients, as we'll see. And if you look at the social breakdown of the asylum, it pretty much mirrored the social breakdown of the um, uh, population outside the asylum. So Andrew Skull's idea that the Victorian asylum was a dumping ground for the uh, discontented isn't borne out, uh, at least in the case of the Royal Edinburgh. So all the patients that were coming to Royal Edinburgh Asylum at this time were detained. They were there against their will. Uh, they'd been detained under the Scottish Lunacy Act. Uh, and most of the patients uh, had come from home. So we have to remember when we look at the patients' letters, patients weren't there because they wanted to be, and, and this coloured their uh, comments on the asylum. And as we'll see, many were deceived by relatives. Uh, they weren't told they were going to an asylum. So it was a, a quite a shock for many to discover they were inside the Royal Edinburgh Asylum. So the patients' letters uh, were kept back, some of them were kept back, uh, and were stuck in the case notes. Uh, and this is the, the archive I, I looked at. And uh, medical staff were allowed to look at all the patients' writings by uh, virtue of the 1866 Scottish Lunacy Act, and if they felt uh, letters shouldn't go out, uh, they could keep them, and uh, they often stuck them in the case notes. And staff kept uh, letters back if they th thought uh, they showed mental disturbance, and we have comments by staff on the letters, a mad letter, or showing several delusions. Another comment, is usually much depressed, bewails his lot, and accuses the doctors and the lunacy laws, and writes long letters daily, stating his case to his relations and the officials of the asylum. So patients uh, wrote for a, a great variety of reasons, uh, to understand the predicament, to make sense of the distress, to complain, to get out, to communicate with the outside world, to condemn the asylum, to criticise or praise the uh, inmates, and very many appealed to Dr Clouston as the head doctor. And patients wrote on a, a wide variety of materials, such as notepaper and postcards, scraps of paper, bits of magazine, wrapping paper, old letters, and even toilet paper. If you look at uh, where these letters came from, the West House uh, was uh, the pauper uh, wing of the hospital, and um, we, we see that males outnumbered females, uh, although the actual ratio of male to female patients at the time was about the same. East House, the private wing, again, males uh, outnumbered uh, females. And there were about 272 letters uh, that weren't stuck in the notes but were part of the archive. So we have over a 1,000 letters. Uh, I think it's a very rich source to look at what patients were thinking about the, their time in the asylum. 
And if you look at the destinations, people wrote to family and friends, as you'd expect. The highest proportion uh, were sent to Dr. Clouston, but medical uh, assistants and nurses also received letters and uh, fellow patients. There's a sprinkling of letters to family doctors, police and solicitors. And there seems to be very few to the Lunacy Commission kept in the notes. I think this is because uh, these letters actually reached the, their destination. Royalty and eminent people uh, received letters or were sent uh, letters and there was undetermined, some letters it was uh, impossible to tell who they were meant for. So what I was going to do is uh, look at patients' account of life on the asylum uh, under uh, a variety of themes. Uh, firstly, admission, patients' comments about the asylum regime, the theme of lack of liberty and boredom and tedium, patients' accounts of the attendants or nursing staff, their uh, accounts uh, of Dr. Clouston, fellow patients' accounts of sex, wrongful confinement <coughs> and escape. So if we look at admission, uh, many patients were shocked and surprised that they'd found their way into the Morningside Asylum. Many were disorientated. Uh, when people realised where they were, patients described despair and dejection. And there was a distrust uh, also emerged when people felt they'd been tricked uh, into the asylum. So uh, to take some extracts uh, about patients' accounts of admission. The first is from James B., a 23-year-old law student, who wrote, I've only just realised that I'm actually in a lunatic asylum. Who on earth ordered a cabman to drive me here? Another uh, patient complained about being misled, James K. No sooner had I walked up Granton Pier than my son meets me, shook hands and got into the train. So on getting to Edinburgh Station, his cousin is awaiting me. And instead of me going to Edinburgh to purchase a new publication, treating on the laws and the adulteration of food, here does the two crafty devils, son and nephew, get me decoyed away until they landed me in Morningside Asylum. And James L. complained, they told me this was a very nice place to live at. I was under the impression that I was going to the hydropathic house at Craig Lockhart. You may imagine my horror when I found it was a lunatic house filled with perfectly insane men and women. I'm not insane. And the language that this patient is using uh, could be found in some of the Victorian novels of the day, uh, particularly Hard Cash by Charles Reed, which is a novel about wrongful confinement in Victorian England. And I think we see an interaction between popular language and, and the patient's uh, language as well of how to describe uh, this uh, very traumatic experience of landing in an asylum. So lots of patients thought, uh, complained about being misinformed. Some were told they were going to Hollywood Palace. Sarah J complained, I was certainly surprised that the friend who was to fetch me was turned into an attendant at a lunatic asylum. Louis G was told he was going to stay with Clouston and his family. Elizabeth F thought she was going back home to Summerside. So we see for a lot of patients that their entry into the Royal Edinburgh Asylum was far from happy. They'd been tricked a lot of the time. Some had been manhandled and lied to. So when they started to write home, you can see a lot of them were fairly embittered uh, about their new home. Turning now to the, the asylum regime, uh, this was predictable, unchanging table of getting up early in the morning, eating, exercise and early to bed. And one patient uh, described uh, the routine, Edward P. You'd be heart sorry if you could see me sitting all day on the end of the seat among a lot of men you'd be almost be frightened to meet in the street. I'm getting no special treatment at all. The food here is of the very coarsest. Porridge or coffee for breakfast with dry bread at 11 o'clock 
dry bed and cheese, beer or milk, then a walk round the grounds in a gang, dinner at two o'clock, broth and mutton, another walk in the afternoon, then tea at six, one cup and almost dry bread, then bed at eight o'clock. Between times you have to sit still and can do nothing but think, think, think. <coughs> and uh, Charles T complained about the routine. I cannot ever get a comfortable night's sleep as I'm forced to go to bed at nine. I'm waked up by the night watchman at 6.20, two hours or more before breakfast. I'm called again at 7.30 by another man. And Edward P. complained, I've been forced to herd with lunatics and under the constant charge of an attendant. And it was frequently that patients would describe other patients as lunatics and feel they were, they were excluded from that term. Alex Y. complained, it's no wonder I get depressed here, like going round and round that eternal park. And Robert C. complained to Clouston that being forced to walk often when quite unable. This D. objected to the gospel of fatness. I'm suffering the most awful agonies inwardly by being forced to swallow unlimited quantities of every kind of food and liquids every few hours. And Robert C. complained, I've never, I've been required to take such quantities as I could never uh, comfortably take all my life. And Reverend Alex W. Uh, mused about asylum laws, which he said were rather queer. If you do anything on the sly here, it is all right. But if you wish to escape trouble, you must not be honest. Best hypocrite to all outward appearances gets on the best. And this uh, anticipates uh, Irving Goffman's uh, book in the 1950s, uh, Asylums, in which he was saying that uh, if a patient uh, pretended to be a model patient, uh, they got on much better than if they expressed themselves, they were more likely to uh, stay in the asylum longer. The lack of liberty, uh, as you might expect, was a recurring theme. Patients were there against their will. Anne L, a 24-year-old single lady, complained, You don't know what a punishment it is to me to be locked up like this and to have all my pets taken away from me. And Jane C from England wrote, I always thought Scotland was a free country. I'm as cross as two sticks at being shut up here. <laughs> and William B, who wrote a lot of letters and uh, was quite insightful about the asylum, said, They're always watching for evidence to justify detention. All your rational conduct... All evidence of sanity makes no impression on their mind. It's quickly or immediately forgotten. While the slightest mistake, the slightest momentary forgetfulness, the slightest ebullition of temper is carefully noted, always treasured up, and will be remembered against you for months or even years afterwards. I say this life in an asylum is an immense strain upon your mind. And William B. again anticipates uh, Irving Goffman in his book on asylums uh, with the point that uh, behaviour uh, that could be perfectly unremarkable outside the asylum, if seen within the asylum context, is seen uh, as evidence of uh, mental illness and uh, it's used to justify why the person's in the asylum. So uh, another theme, of course, is boredom and tedium. Sarah M. complained, it's an awful waste of life and time. George O wrote, there's very little doing here. Alex W, it is difficult to keep out of mischief with nothing to do. This has been an insufferably dull week. And of course people appealed to get out. Peter uh, McKem implored his father, I cry to you from the very inmost depths of my soul to use every means to get me out from this place. Mrs Margaret T asked her husband to send enough money by return post to enable her to leave and added, I've cried often to get away from here. 
and Charles C. wrote to his brother, threatening suicide, I do not wish to live any longer. I cannot and will not live here any longer. If you do not come and take me out of here tomorrow, you will not see me alive again. So people driven to desperate uh, states. The attendants, or uh, what we'd call the nurses, of course, received a, a lot of comment from uh, the patients. Because attendants were uh, responsible for enforcing the asylum regime, making sure the patients got up and went for meals and went for walks. And uh, they, they did attract uh, resentment from many patients. And the more affluent patients looked down on the attendants and saw them as uh, beneath them social inferiors. But it wasn't all negative comments. Uh, some patients uh, got on with attendants and thanked them for their help. However, uh, many patients complained about physical man man manhandling. Uh, Alex L. wrote, Smith came in and rolled me nearly over the bed. And when I, in quiet and civil language, resented his insolence, he told me coarsely to get my bed made, the usual style in which they crush patients here. And another patient, James B., uh, wrote, Fancy a fellow of my age being thrashed with a walking stick and dragged off suddenly of a morning and pitched head foremost into a bath and held down. A bath does one good, but be kicked like a football and twisted like a wet cloth is too much of a good thing. However, some patients uh, enjoyed tussling with the nurses. A governor, Elizabeth McGem, reported, I had to be hauled around by my nurses. Or perhaps it would be more correct to say that I hauled them around. And jolly big nurses they were, to be sure. It was good fun for a while. <laughs> and uh, it wasn't all uh, negative, Elizabeth McGill uh, told Clouston. All the attendants have been most kind and attentive to me. Christian Wall, the attendant you left me with, has been most faithful. And George B. enthused, I am proud that I am an inmate of this Royal Institution, Tipplin Road, Morningside. It has done me the world of good. I never felt so comfortable and well in all my life. I am taken great care of here. We have six keepers to look at over 70 patients. Mr Macdonald, the night warden, is a jolly fellow. <laughs> so Dr Clouston, uh, as we've seen, got uh, the, the highest proportion of letters. and He, he was the figurehead of the asylum and the focus of uh, patients' writings. and he, he upheld the values of, of the asylum system. And he was seen, probably correctly, by inmates as the ultimate arbiter of their fate. And patients wrote to uh, Dr. Clouston requesting privileges, complaining, demanding their liberty, telling of the, their distress, or trying to be understood. And Clouston, like the attendants, uh, received praise and criticism. And uh, dealing with the praise, uh, David H. wrote, You have certainly shown me a great deal of kindness and consideration. James P. wrote, There is no doubt it is you that I owe not only my life, but the very rapid and satisfactory recovery I have made. And Andrew, you thank Clouston for the deep interest which you manifested in me when I was in the asylum. And Mary Kay wrote, I venture to think of you as a friend. Pa patients frequently ask Clouston to intervene uh, in their daily problems, whether it was the perceived rudeness of the attendant or the poor quality of the food or other patients. And Clouston from these letters emerges as a law-giving patriarch of the asylum family, called in to pronounce on squabbles that broke out. And from Clouston's point of view, he would give inmates advice, he would praise them for the good behaviour, reprimand them if they were misbehaving, uh, and question them about their problems. And Clouston had a variety of strategies with the, with the patients. Sometimes he would have a light-hearted approach, uh, others uh, he would be uh, stern uh, and forbidding with them. 
And of course, uh, patients varied in their response to clustum. Some were hostile and aggressive, some were puzzled by what it all meant, and others uh, obeyed what clustum was telling them. And we get some idea of these exchanges from Clouston's daily ward round, which was a journey around the, the whole hospital. Uh, and we get an idea of the nature of this. Uh, in this, Clouston is uh, using his light-hearted approach. Joseph McKell says, Dr. Clouston mentioned the other week that the next glass of whiskey I take, he will get a big policeman for me. <laughs> and the next one is, uh, I think, another light-hearted approach. William H. says, when I asked for my discharge, he asked me what the ladies would do without me. I was such a fine singer and dancer. So Clouston is trying to cajole uh, the patient with, uh, with humour. But he didn't always use this, and sometimes he just simply told the patient uh, they were grounded, as George M. Uh, reported. I had a few words with Dr. Clouston last week, and I've since been confined to barracks. <laughs> Janet S., uh, one of the patients who was apologetic, I'm very sorry to have gone out without your permission. I hope that you'll not continue angry with me about it, for you seem very angry today. Of course, other patients uh, objected to Clouston, and William S. wrote, the daily perfunctory but needless inquiries after my health, bodily and mental, which official red tape necessitates. And the physician uh, superintendent was expected to go around and see the patients on a daily basis. Peter C. complained, as my character is continually asked after and inquired into, and if I am to be forced to give satisfactory answers to all interrogations, then mine must be answered likewise. And James F. said, I should like to ask you on what occasion have you or your assistants spoken to me but in the merest passing way and always in the presence of your officers and other patients. So we get an idea that this was a, an intruder around the asylum, Clouston <coughs> and his men and uh, nurses, and the exchanges would be uh, very public uh, in wards. It wasn't a one-to-one -one, uh, in a consulting room. And another patient uh, got to the heart of it when he wrote, as you give me so little time to speak on your visits, I need to write. I think this explains why there were so many letters to Clouston. People felt they needed time and space to expand on, uh, on their problems. And William B., who I quoted before, again has an interesting comment on all this. He says, you've been thinking of an abstruse problem in logic or metaphysics. He enters the room determined to test that fellow's memory or judgment, again upon some passing newspaper event familiar to himself. Although you may have given it passing notice to it, you did not dwell on it or it interests you. The doctor himself is au fait. Well, your remarks are quite perfunctory, or if you have been deep in other thought, even coherent. The doctor stocks off a proud man. It is just as he thought, a growing failure of mental power, a case of general paralysis. He was always, he was always proud of any evidence justifying the retention of a useful and paying patient. And William B. is uh, cynically suggesting Clouston is keeping people there for the money. So, if we look at the letters uh, and patients' perspective on Clouston, we see there's a variety of perspectives and perspectives that change. For some, Clouston was uh, a jailer, he was an autocrat and a petty tyrant. For others, he was a wise philosopher, a kind of physician, and we've seen a friend. For others, he was the enemy. For some, he was a confidant. For some, he was a spy spying on their uh, daily behaviour. For some, he was a lover. Uh, for many, he was a foreboding uh, patriarch of the institution a money-grubbing madhouse keeper. For some, he was a Christian. Of course, Clouston was uh, a devout Christian. Others de derided him as a heathen and a low dog. So multiple perspectives on Dr. Clouston. And this picture is Clouston and his, uh, his wife. 
fellow patients. Now, this, uh, for a lot of people coming into Morningside Asylum, was a very disconcerting experience uh, meeting the, the, their fellow patients. And uh, this uh, was something that uh, a lot of patients wrote about. Coming into the Morningside Asylum, they witnessed uh, fellow patients speaking in peculiar ways and striking odd, bizarre postures, sometimes displaying vile personal habits, and at times becoming unpredictably violent. So uh, some of the letters on this subject, uh, Mrs H uh, complained, how the law of the land can permit such a number of persons to inhabit one building is extraordinary, especially insane persons whose breaths are generally disagreeable to inhale. And Mrs Ringrose being allowed to remain so long in her diseased state, amongst others, not similarly afflicted, and even made to attend the meals in the hall and sit beside others at table, is disgustingly incredible. And on a similar line, Lewis G complained, Old codgers in every state, stage of decay share the table with me and have long beards, a circumstance that don't contribute to neatness. You see the beasts with their beards reeking of soup and broth, and as we have no na napkins at breakfast or supper, the poor devils take their hands and wipe off the bits of vegetable and meat and use the tablecloth for further final cleansing of their hands. And many patients... Uh, talked about the communication amongst patients or the lack of communication. William W. said simply, I'm sick of the noise of the daft folk. John C. said, although there's a lot of people here, they don't speak to one another the same as people does on the outside. They stare into one another's faces without speaking as they have nothing to say. And Alex L. wrote, I've had no one to speak to since I came in, as all the patients seem taciturn and morose. They do not talk much amongst themselves their talk is the most wretched and irritating one could hear. George S. Uh, brought in the class issue and complained about going in company of a stinking low set. George H. Uh, Lockhart objected to being placed amongst the riffraff. So there's this mixing uh, of classes and not to everyone's taste. From the other end of the social spectrum, Janet C., a servant, objected to the division of labour, as we've seen the private patients did no labour, and she says, I've knitted stockings for the high persons and done sewing too and got no thanks for it. And Peter McM despaired, I've lost my freedom. I'm wearing pauper's clothes and eating pauper's food. I'm very sensitive and it causes me to feel averse to the asylum to have to wear, have to wear the regulation suit. And the regulation suit, the pauper uniform, uh, got a lot of complaints from patients. Mary E. lamented... <coughs> I feel so much not having my own clothes. I was never in the habit of wearing other folks' clothes. And Anne B. wrote, It is bad enough being a pauper lunatic. I don't like living off the public, though I'm not a fraud. I even wear the grey dress, apron and shoes. And Janet F., a 22-year-old servant, wrote home, Dear Mother, you know I have no clothes in here to keep me clean and respectable in here, so if you will bring me my grey ginnam dress and a few aprons, it's very sad to think I'm here. I'll never come back to Aberdour if God spares me to get out of here. I'm so much ashamed to be here. And patients did uh, talk of the, their shame about being a, a pauper lunatic. However, some uh, retaliated, and uh, Janet Eyre, a domestic servant, declared to Clouston, I'm commanded by God to tell you that you're to make arrangements for me to be taken off the so-called pauper list and put on the private. He wishes me still to stay in convalescence, but I am to have my own clothes, such like as they are, and to take my food in the little hall with the ladies.
sex. Uh, uh, um, uh, um, you read about in the letters with patients talking about their feelings for other patients or, or for members of staff, and just some examples. Uh, Johnny S. wrote to a fellow patient, My own Bonnie, Bonnie Maggie, I long to clasp you to my bosom. And James T. Uh, proposed marriage to another patient and added, With regard to you being medically under Dr. Clouston's care, that is no doubt a contingency that is liable to happen to anyone. <laughs> John H. asked his father to send threepence worth of mixed chocolates for me to give to one of the nurses, who has taken a great fancy to me and who will make a very good wife to me. Another patient uh, confessed, I was unfortunate enough to get hold of photo bits with some pictures in it of women displaying their limbs, which has not done me much good. I feel a little <laughs> excited and nervous. And Francis C. wrote to one of the medical assistants, Dr. Middlemass, You're most kind to me, as well as gentle. I think it was so very kind of you to dance with me last evening. And Mrs. C. told Dr. Rutherford, another medical assistant, I really and truly do care for you. I will really marry you if you are willing to come for me. Let us go away from this dreadful place. And Alfred C., a 21-year-old music student, declared his love for one of the medical assistants. My dear beloved husband, Don Alfonso, I hope I have not insulted you in calling you my dear beloved husband. I do love you better than the three persons in one God, also better than the Blessed Virgin Mary. I hope that you might accept me through pity, as I am longing to sleep in bed with you. Wrongful uh, confinement. Many patients felt uh, they were wrongfully confined in the asylum. They weren't insane and, and they shouldn't uh, have been there. And in their letters, they questioned the legitimacy of the lunacy certificates and they railed against their relations uh, for getting them into the asylum and the courts uh, and the doctors for completing the certificates. And uh, just to take a couple of examples, or a few examples, well, Charlotte H. claimed, Father maliciously put me in here because I made a complaint of the way he was using me and trying to starve me to death. And John L. M. also blamed his father. My poor weak father has been influenced by the lawyers who have initiated Dr. Blank to sign a lying certificate upon the facts of which the sheriff has issued a writ equally false. I am a prisoner. And William W. Uh, shows the damage it could do to family relations. And he writes, My so-called friends, my wife and all her relations have treated me with most cruel and culpable neglect. My heart, soul and best loving affectionate feelings are utterly deadened and hardened. The bonds and cords that united me to them must now be cut asunder in order that I may be a free, noble man in the future. And patients disputed with uh, Clouston uh, the definition of insanity and what, what was... Uh, legitimate to be locked up for. James John Dee wrote, Supposing I heard voices in my ears, real or imaginary, that is no reason why I should be sent here. There was not a single act in my own home or since I came here to show why I should be under control, but quite the opposite. And Richard R. Uh, argued with Clouston, You have not seen no signs of insanity with me. I have never attempted to cut my throat. I have never shat my bed, as some have done. I never had to be held down on the sofa as I've seen them. So a patient looking around uh, his fellow patients and seeing uh, how they were behaving and saying that he, he wasn't behaving like that. He shouldn't be in an asylum. And George M. observed sadly, I find it more difficult to get out from this place than it is easy to get into. And this uh, letter is interesting. Sarah McGee complained to Clouston that she was wrongfully confined, that it was a mad sister who uh, was out of her mind that got her in. 
and she tells Cluson, It is very hard to be kept here when there is nothing wrong with me, when I am quite able to work for myself. If you would kindly give this consideration, I know that it is no interest of yours to keep me here. And Cluston looked into the case and decided there was nothing wrong with this uh, patient and she was promptly discharged. And uh, I think when the patient writes, I know that there's no interest to, uh, for you to keep me here, I think this is true with the asylum getting crowded and crowded. Why would asylum staff want to drag in people who, who weren't mentally ill? Uh, and this uh, example anyway shows that it was possible to get out of a Victorian asylum. If all else failed, patients uh, tried to escape and there were opportunities in the asylum day uh, to try and escape. There was the walks around the grounds that patients complained about, there were gardening parties, there were trips into town, uh, and patients uh, did uh, make use of this, and uh, they often wrote back to Clouston. And some were very triumphant, they'd escaped. Some apologised to Clouston, sorry, I had to leave. Uh, some were gloating, and some wanted to re-establish their status. Instead of being uh, a lunatic inmate, uh, they were addressing Clouston uh, on an equal basis as they saw it. And just two examples. Uh, William B., a 45-year-old builder, escaped home and wrote to Dr Lennox, Will you kindly excuse me for not bidding you and Dr Clouston goodbye yesterday? Will you also kindly make an apology for me to the ladies for my unavoidable absence in the drawing room this evening? And the difficulty about writing back was uh, most patients were promptly taken back to the asylum, they were found and taken back because uh, they'd put their address on their letters to Clouston. <laughs> One patient who did uh, manage to escape wrote back to Clouston, No doubt it would displease you my going off in the manner I did, but while out that forenoon I felt I could not resist from taking my own liberty, especially when feeling well, I just walked away without any personal assistance whatsoever. I'm now stronger and still taking cod liver oil, malt and feeling well. So that's uh, an account of a uh, patient's perspectives on what it's like to be a patient in the asylum. And uh, in a, short, a much shorter section, I'll look at patients' accounts of what it's like uh, to feel disturbed uh, in your mind. Uh, and this picture is by one of the Royal Edinburgh Asylum patients, uh, William Bartholomew, who was a very talented artist and so as being a patient. And uh, I was going to organise this uh, short section under themes, persecution, the feeling of being experienced, uh, of being controlled by outside forces, having grandiose ideas, hearing voices, and uh, disturbances in mood. So, if we look at persecution, which was the commonest uh, type of delusion uh, at the Royal Edinburgh at this time, Susan T uh, wrote, "The torture of spiritualism has been continuously torturing me every minute." and no sympathy given me, indeed, indeed scarcely food to keep me in life. I'm not taken out, if I'm not taken out soon, I'll be found dead with the tortures of spiritualism. God help me, I'm a poor persecuted woman by brutes of men. And Mary C. complained, I'm a poor loom worker, and my health is fearful impaired by the parties combining and conspiring my life away, scandals and cowards. And uh, George uh, M thought that his children lived in an asylum on the first floor in a room by themselves uh, and he wrote I and my children are confined here under vicious false pretenses and our lives are in danger as those who have us in their custody threaten daily that they will murder us unless their wishes are complied with. Thoughts of being controlled by outside forces uh, were common and just give some examples. Jesse H, uh, a governor, recorded Every four hours the hypnotist and the telepathist go and two others come. 
There is no doubt they have a school for teaching hypnotism, and I am the hypnotic subject. And as we know, uh, patients' delusions uh, reflect the culture they're in. And for many patients to try and explain the outside influences, hypnotism and telepathy uh, were common uh, means of explanation. And for example, Alex B confessed he was being immersed in unwelcome sexual thoughts and wrote, I found myself by mesmeric influence tempted to think too much of things that were inclined to sensuality, to do things in an unnatural way, and being made a complete slave to the habit. And uh, William B. Uh, told his father, The bedroom in which I sleep is very badly ventilated, and it seems to me that there are fumes of some sort pumped down the chimney. I can feel perceptible particles falling over me. For a couple of nights it was pipes laid or with a gas cylinder in the room above. I've been made a mechanical experiment of. And patients uh, refer to scientific advances in the, their society, gas, electricity, uh, feature in, and the Rontgen rays uh, feature in the patient's uh, accounts. Grandiose delusions uh, were uh, the second most common delusion. And typical delusions were having immense wealth, uh, having great abilities, or being an exalted uh, person. And, and if we look at the roll call of assumed grandiose identities in the patient's letters, we find the Marshal Commander in Chief of All Her Majesty's Troops, the Earl of Cucubre, the King of Spain, the Consort for Peace and Prosperity in Israel, Jesus Christ, the Goddess of Heaven, the Universal Empress, the Divine Holy Trinity, the Prophet Elias, the Prince of Wales, Prince of Alland, Lord Salisbury, the President of the United States of America, and Queen Victoria. And just to take a couple of uh, extracts uh, on this theme, James uh, W. offered to cure uh, the ailing Archbishop of Canterbury, and he wrote, The writer of this note happens to be one of the most important medical discoverers of this or any other century. For example, he was the earliest, earliest discoverer of the cure of rheumatism, the first cure of cancer without the knife by means of the air pump. And Thomas P., a joiner, wrote, God is raising me above all the others and intends to set me up on the earth, the wisest philosopher in the world, as I am a burning and a shining light upon earth. This world is in darkness until I come to its assistance. <coughs> and many uh, patients complained of hearing voices. Uh, Mary S. described, The sound of voices around me, both above ground but particularly below, from the caverns through which the North British Railway and the Caledonian Pass make it almost an impossibility to think or speak coherently. And Robert M., a 38-year-old alcoholic draper, talked about what he called being telephonated, which uh, psychiatrists would describe as a neologism, a new word that patients uh, make up to try and describe their experiences. So he writes, On the Monday following about 10 o'clock at night, sitting in the same public house, I heard the voices for the first time. They threatened violence. I looked about the front shop to see where the parties were. could see no likely persons. I took the train to Edinburgh trying to get rid of the voices. When, in the South Bridge, about midday on Tuesday, a very strong voice, as someone giving a recitation, seemed to come from the clouds, read a verse or two of Scripture. And just uh, finally looking at uh, uh, examples of mood disturbance, um, a depressed patient, uh, Catherine H., uh, wrote... I'm a crooked, twisted piece of humanity. The sooner I die, the better. I hope God will relieve me from my sufferings, as I really cannot stand it. 
and someone expressing elevated mood was Margaret R., a 19-year-old servant, who wanted to host a party in the ward and declared, I'm very well liked by all, and I keep them all laughing. They say they never seen such a girl to speak. They say if I am weak, my tongue is not. They say it is a wonder I'm not tired of speaking. Can't sleep at night at all. Okay, so that's uh, an e extract from patients' letters. And as I was saying, th these letters were composed when patients were in the asylum and in the midst of mental turmoil. And I think uh, they do possess this immediacy. And uh, I should point out that a lot of uh, these responses and impressions that patients uh, described changed over time. They could be fleeting uh, impressions. Some who criticised staff would later uh, thank them. In the a selection of letters, as we've seen, uh, proper patients and female patients are, are rather unrepresented. Uh, and uh, I'd say if we were looking at these letters, we couldn't just have them as a ammunition against the wickedness of the asylum. I think in the letters we see certainly patients complaining, but also patients uh, expressing uh, thanks to, to asylum staff about uh, what happened to them. And with regard to the patients uh, describing their, their mental torments, we see the clear influence of the, the Victorian culture and how they try to, to understand what was going on with them. So uh, I'll end by thanking the staff at Lothian Health Service Archives, where these letters are housed. Uh, and if anyone's interested, this talk is based on uh, a series of papers. I'll thank you very much for your attention. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our History of Medicine lecture series, Case Notes. This podcast has been brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. We're a charity, and if you enjoyed today's show, head over to rcpe.ac.uk heritage for more information and how to donate. Thank you.